Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Samoma Loss with Restore the Mississippi River Delta. And we are very excited to bring you this Thanksgiving week episode. Simone, we're already at Thanksgiving. Are you prepared? I know you've got a lot of decisions to make about the ice cream, turkey cake. Yes, Um, still pending, still pending. Still pending, Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. I need to actually go and and do some shopping this weekend. Um, We'll see if there are any turkeys left. Um, I I notoriously leave those things to the last minute, but I'm going to try to be a little bit more prepared this year. Um, But yeah, it's... A friend of mine, she, um, she had moved away from Louisiana and it was just her and her husband and... Um, she didn't want to, you know, she didn't want to miss Thanksgiving, but she also didn't want to make a big fuss about it. You know, it was just the two of them. And so she made turkey tetrazzini. She was like, oh, I feel like I needed the turkey part. But, you know, and so she just did it differently. And I thought that was really fun. And so I um, might have to convince my mom to do that next time. Um, also, too, Jacques, you should know that I, I took a page from your playbook and um, we did float the idea of possibly having um Olympics or games um, at our Thanksgiving um, since y'all had the summer um, games that we made. Yeah, I think I think we need to give a little bit of an explainer here. So Graham's my husband's family has been doing um, summer Olympics for 35 years. And it is I went I got to attend my first one this past summer um, in Minnesota. And it is impressive. I mean, they have a full on, you know, there are multiple games, there are medals, there's like a, a ceremony on the podium for the winners, <laughs> like, and it's been going on for like 35 years. I managed to get a bronze in the oh. um, obstacle course, which is impressive since yeah, I was for your first time, competing for sure. against like 16 yeah. year olds and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I'm glad that that inspired you. And I need mm-hmm. to see documentation of the Malaz uh, Terrio family. Uh, yeah, Olympics, please. yeah. Um, yeah, we'll have to see there, there might be some archery involved or, um, also obstacle courses. I like that. I like that. We might start small this year. Maybe we'll have the, um, turkey ice cream cake eating contest or something. <laughs> don't y'all do, don't y'all do, is it cherry seeds? What are y'all, y'all cherry do? Cherry yeah. seed spitting, spitting, which, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I did not quite, you know, no, do well in, but, but yeah, that's fine. fine. So, Lots of work cool. form there, form. So yeah, exactly. Andy's going to think we're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Well, I'm last so ex- time you had, yeah. well, last time you had Andy on the show, you didn't have me to have some witty banter I with. And I so know. he's probably, it like, must've been one of those days that you were out in the field or doing important mm, work for our coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I, we had, um, Dr. Andy Nyman, who will have uh, intro uh, soon, but him along with Eric Johnson, we're talking about wildlife. Oh. And in fact, that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you haven't been paying attention, the Louisiana Louisiana alligator is taking center stage on Thursday at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, the Louisiana Office of Tourism is putting a float in the parade to celebrate Louisiana. And of course, it's an alligator float, right? So we want to talk about the alligator, talk about, you know, it's really amazing comeback if you think about it from a conservation standpoint, but also the importance of Louisiana's coast to the alligator and to wildlife. So we couldn't think of anyone better to have on to discuss that than Dr. John Andrew Nyman, Professor of Wetland Wildlife Ecology with LSU School of Renewable Natural Resources. Welcome back to the show, Andy. Oh, thanks for having me back. 
So 2017 was the last time you were on. There's a lot that's changed since then. Certainly a lot's <laughs> changed in the last, you know, four days, much less four years. So how have you been doing? Uh, keep it on, keep it on. Always uh, juggling a bunch of stuff, uh, barely. So Andy, so if folks missed that episode, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Uh, I, I grew up in New Orleans and uh, went to UNO, and then I worked for the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries for a while, and decided I wanted grad school, wanted a graduate degree. I didn't want to didn't want to end up uh, as a professor, but when I did that, I got <laughs> really found out that research. Uh, there's a lot of you know, I went into graduate school thinking we already knew everything, and then I realized there's actually a bunch of stuff that we could you know we could figure out to make things a little bit more efficient, a little better, and so I. Ended up uh, getting my master's in wildlife and then a PhD in oceanography and was at USL, which is now ULL in Lafayette for seven years. And then came back to LSU. And uh, uh, I got to tell you, I just feel so lucky. I love most of my work. We talk a lot of diff- talk to a lot of different scientists, especially recently. Jacques's been trying to um, get me to go through some science classes via Delta Dispatches. But um, you, you're, an, you know, you're from here. You're a Louisiana guy, so I love your story. I love that. Oh, so do I. So do I. I so can't when, imagine and, retiring, Andy. When you were growing up, when you were little, Andy, which is this is one of my favorite questions on the show. Did you always want to do this? It sounds like you you always kind of had an interest in this and um it led you down that path but is that something you were always interested in uh you know it's kind of so you know i grew up in new orleans but my neither of my parents were from there in fact they they moved there before i was two they were from tiny town mississippi uh southeast mississippi and so we would go back there for holidays and i would you know walk in the creeks and play out and you know the back field and stuff but i was a city kid most of the year and i got a uh kind of embarrassed to say that as I went through college, my only desire for a job was to be outside. Ah, no shame in that. <laughs> close enough that I could be back in town for happy hour every day. That <laughs> well, speaking of being outside, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this before the show, but part of your work, you know, at certain times, you know, in, in your career has allowed you to get out and probably see some really amazing places on Louisiana's coast that many people don't have an opportunity to see. So what is your favorite or what has been your favorite place to go out and conduct research and see wildlife across the coast? Oh my gosh. There's so, there's so many, it's all so cool. Actually my favorite place is someplace I hadn't been before just cause I just want to see some, I don't know, I'm addicted to it. You know, I'm, I'm, for most things, I'm a normal guy, but when it comes to wetlands, for some reason, I'm just fascinated, addicted. And so, you know, I've got students collecting data now over in southeast Texas and all the way over to the extreme eastern Louisiana. And I like getting out in all of it. But, you know, my favorite place is where I worked um, when I was wildlife fisheries, which is down at the very end of the river, uh, Pasalute Wildlife Management Area. And so that's where I get to go keep, I keep working there. I got students doing research there or I take students down uh, for uh, teaching purposes for spring break usually. But I also, and, and what's nice about that is I get to stay in the camp, you know, they got air conditioning <laughs> in the summer, heating in the winter, but I also go hunting there. When I hunt there, I'm sleeping on, on the ground in a tent like everybody else. And I love that as well. Uh, so Mouth of the River is my favorite place. Yeah, well, we we definitely want to to dig into that in in a little bit. Um, so so 
I want to leave that hanging right there, Pasalut, especially in a little bit. Um, but today we want to talk about um, how the American alligator is going to take center stage at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. A couple years ago, I think the 610 Stompers were, were the big deal, but it sounds like the alligator is going to be the Louisiana takeover for the Thanksgiving Day Parade. So, um, I mean, I guess they chose the alligator because it's the most iconic Louisiana wildlife spe- uh, species. So what do you think, Andy? I get, you know, I, I don't know if it's the most iconic or not, you know, but uh, in my mind anyway, because I always, you know, I, I eat a whole lot more oysters, shrimp and crabs. Than I do <laughs> um, but they're all up there. And certainly when, you know, from looking, looking at the way people from outside look at Louisiana, I think the alligator's got to be, you know, the, the icon of the state. So, Andy, I have to ask, I mean, uh, you know, there have been actually a number of conservation success stories in Louisiana. If you think about the brown pelican, if you think about um, even the bald eagle, um, but certainly the alligator is one of those success stories. I mean, they were once threatened and now they seem to be thriving across Louisiana's coast. So can you help us understand what are some of the actions that were taken to help get alligator, the alligator population where it is today? Managed wildlife harvest you know the research that's what it is and to make that work it, it took a lot of research but it is really it is truly one of the one of the best stories on the planet for wildlife management and you know it's well known in in the wildlife circle but you know growing up in in, in you know louisiana today most people just kind of take it for granted but it it's really a tremendous success story when you look at it where it was in uh, the early 1960s and, and how many alligators we have now it's just phenomenal Andy, when when they had to put some of those management practices in in place, were they met with a lot of resistance, or or did people? Because I don't actually know the the before the story, right? I know the success part of it, but did it was it a big education campaign? Did folks realize how in trouble they were? So I'm not that old, but <laughs> I was. I didn't mean to apply that, Andy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I, I think that it only takes a few percent of the people to mess up everything, you know, for everybody else. And so I think the alligator was like that. It was, uh, I think most people realized it was being overharvested, but you know, when you need, when you need to make a living and someone's willing to pay you for an animal, you're going to do it even though it's illegal. And so, you know, by the late 1950s, they were harvesting every animal they could. There was, you know, they were, they were, no matter how small it was and no matter how rare it was, people were still harvesting. And, uh, you know, the market was there for it. And so in 1962, they they made it illegal. Not that the rules before then have been followed, but what really helped, uh, it was partly local success. Yes, we needed to get the locals behind it because, you, you know, look at the marijuana laws today. If people aren't behind it, it's not going to be effective. <laughs> Jacques and I are going to do a whole nother show on the on marijuana. Andy, thanks. We can have you on as a guest. <laughs> 2022, yes. <laughs> it's on our agenda. But the public did get behind it in the early 1960s. Part of it, I think, it got easier because of uh, international treaties that made it difficult to ship skins out of the United States if they're illegal. But part of it was also just the growing uh, environmental awareness of the time. And so, yeah, from 1962 to 1972, there effectively was no harvest, no commercial harvest of alligators in Louisiana. There might have been a few people killing them here and there, but uh, it, during that time, they, they, they did a great job. Uh, got out, the alligator numbers came right back up. So, Andy, I want to talk about 
you know, Louisiana's coast and how it supports alligators. So one of the things, I mean, we try to focus on and having people like yourself on the show is that, you know, Louisiana's coast is not one big monolithic area. It's very diverse and has a lot of kind of diverse habitat um, that we need to kind of think about preserving the entire range of habitat for a number of species. So what type of habitat do alligators depend on and where do they, where do they typically reside in Louisiana? So you're going to find them in your low salinity wetlands. You, you get them in the bald cypress swamps for sure, um, but uh, that we and it's hard at first to count them in the bald cypress swamps because the you know, the trees are in the way of all the nests. But out in the marshes, it's very easy to count them. And uh, based on the number of alligators seen, if you go out and count them, whatnot, you have a whole lot more in the in the marshes and the swamps. Uh, but even in those marshes, it's not all of them. Uh, once the water gets uh, salty enough for alligators, uh, for oysters, for example, you're never going to find alligators nesting there. Now, certainly, you know, in the spring of the year when the whole coast is, you know, fresh because of, you know, the rivers discharge and the whole Gulf of Mexico gets fresh next to the coast, you know, it, it, you'll have places where there are oysters and alligators will swim out there, but they can't survive there year round. So it's the low salinity marshes where they reach their greatest numbers. So, Andy, um, you know, this is a, a public service announcement and a legal note that uh, people should definitely not feed alligators, especially marshmallows, and they should always keep a safe distance. Um, but what are some, you know, are there some common places where everyday folks can go see alligators? It's not so much a place. It's kind of so your low salinity marshes, but the yeah. best time of year to find them is in the spring of the year. The water's still cold. And they're cold-blooded, so they need to warm up. And so in the mornings, they're going to climb up on the sides of any canal or any ditch out in the marsh. They're going to come out, and they're going to be a little sluggish early in the mornings. That's the best time to see them. It, <laughs> when it they're slow. Like, <laughs> it's like a Tarzan movie out there in, in March and April when uh, you're going out because the water's still cold. They don't want to be in it. The sun's warm, but you're coming by in a boat, and they just start sliding off the banks left and right. Yeah, I can tell you we've, um, you know, one of our places where we see the most is is Davis Pond and Carnarvon. And just like you said, we'll we'll go out early, in, you know, nine o'clock in the morning and um, they will absolutely be sunning themselves on the bank. And um, and so it, it's so interesting to see. But that that's a great tip about the time of year to see them, too. So looking forward, Andy, I mean, alligators have enjoyed this tremendous success and you can go to many places, Jean Lafitte. City Park, even in New Orleans, um, and see alligators, and then of course in, in other areas that are a little bit more remote. But like many uh, wildlife species on Louisiana's coast, they there are still some threats that they face. So what are what are some of the looking forward some of the threats that um, you know alligators are confronting? Well, one of the threats that uh, the, the you know the thing that threatened them and put them in trouble was overharvest. And I want to make sure all the listeners know that that is not a problem anymore. You know, what biologists were able to do in the 1970s and 80s and you know, up until now is not only did they bring that animal from, you know, uh, being extremely low numbers throughout Louisiana, not only did they bring it back up to where we have thousands and thousands of alligators, they did it while commercially harvesting that animal the entire time beginning in 1971. Uh, so they, they resumed the harvest in 72, uh, went statewide by 1981, and the entire time that we've been commercially harvesting alligators, their numbers have been were increasing all the way up until just the past few years. They seem to have leveled off finally. And so the harvest of alligators is not one of their threats. 
In fact, the harvest of alligators makes the habitat valuable to the landowner. And so they're more interested in, it gives them some more incentive to keep it a wetland rather than a subdivision or you know, a, a shopping center or something like that. So that is not one of the threats. The threats we do have are kind of far out there, several decades out. But as sea level rise accelerates, we should we we're going to see the saltier waters moving inland, and so the habitat for the alligators is going to shrink. But that's uh, many decades out there. So, Andy, can we talk about you know how how just future restoration and and some of our efforts that we have ongoing today? How important that is to future alligator populations in terms of creating habitat for them. Yeah, well, so the yeah the the alligators is one of the things that motivates private landowners to you know keep their land a wetland. Uh, it's you know the easiest thing to do is just to let it go. I mean, you, you you let it go and it turns into open water, and you know you don't own the land, you don't have to pay taxes on it anymore, and that, that's the easy thing. But if you can make money off of it by charging people uh, hunting, you know the the right to go on your land so they can shoot the ducks, uh, the right to go on your land to get the alligators uh those things provide incentive and uh, mo- uh motivate the, the restoration and i do want to remind people that the landowner does not own the wildlife those alligators belong to every one of us in the, the state those are those are our alligators collectively the landowner only owns the right to keep people off his land and so if you want to let someone hunt alligators you can make them pay money to come on your land but you don't own the animal. Um, and so anything we, uh, the things that we do to help wetlands, low salinity wetlands are going to help alligators. And so uh, uh, trying to offset the effects of uh, oil and gas canals and the navigation channels that allow the fresh water to drain off faster and the salt water to come in faster, you know, that, that will uh, extend our alligator benefits another uh, decade or two. And the diversions that, uh, uh, we have planned if they start building wetlands, those will uh, keep uh, create new low salinity wetlands and and sustain them for you know a, a good grief a century or more, and so that will also help alligators and all the other low salinity uh, animals that we find in our marshes. Wow, that's I mean impressive a century you know and and kind of thinking about you know alligators but also it's other species too. I mean in terms of the. I guess, biodiversity and the range of habitat that exists in Louisiana's coast, are those efforts important to maintaining that biodiversity over time? Yeah, because we don't want everything to be all fresh or we don't want everything to be all salty, um, you know, because uh, you, you'd lose that diversity. And um, and it's difficult to, uh, to have... Uh, to switch it back and forth real quick. But in the long term, that's exactly what happens. You know, the areas that today are, are many of our saltiest marshes, our, our great uh, redfish and speckled trout, oyster habitat, those places were all fresh a century or more ago. Uh, but, you know, the river abandons them naturally and also unnaturally. We've done an awful lot to, you know, cut off the river from its wetlands. And those areas turn, turn into salty habitat for the, uh, you know, the, the, the salty side of stuff. And so, you know, uh, you know, talking about diversions, uh, I would have been in some of the discussions with the people who want to say, well, you know, after you know, a long time, given an amount of time, they're going to clog up and they'll be so full of sediments and they won't be able to get water through them anymore. And I'm like, good, turn them <laughs> off. Let them turn into salt. 
you know, the first century we'll have them fresh, and then we'll uh, turn the water off and let them be salty for, uh, and degrade away like the, the, the coastline good, should. And, you know, we can let the river build a wetland somewhere else. Uh, and, uh, and so you know, I look at these uh, low salinity wetlands uh, as uh, the next, uh, the salty wetlands of the next decade or century, depending upon, you know, where in the state we are. Yeah. Well, it's so, so in- it's so interesting because I mean your point about some of the areas people are you know harvesting oysters or where whatever you know they're experiencing now the salt marshes they weren't like that I mean you see the certainly the signs and the kind of the ghost uh, forests and the the dead uh, cypress or dead oak ridges but um, but that's something people don't think about you know maybe day to day that like hey what I'm experiencing right now has not been like this for very long right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, people, they kind of, I don't know, they don't, they see it, but they, they, they don't understand sometimes everything it means. Yeah. I, I always love the phrase, a dead live oak, uh, but you see <laughs> those lines of dead live oak out uh, across the marsh. And, and once you realize, oh yeah, that was a, uh, in fact, there's a place not too uh, south of Homa, between Homa and Cocodry. And I've been taking students there a decade or so. And then I learned that one of the guys I went to college with, his grandparents farm just like a mile and a half up the bayou from where I take students all the time. And they, you know, it was low salinity. They farm the ground, you know, potatoes and whatnot. And, you know, it, it's way too salty for that now. And a lot of wetland loss, there's almost nothing left but the natural levee. Uh, but those things happen. And, and, you know, one of the, the, the challenges of diversions is that it's going to change things. And, uh, you know, when my friend's grandparents got, you know, salted out of their land, you know, no one paid them for those damages, and that wasn't right. Uh, and but you know, the diversion's open today. You know, that's going to uh, negatively affect a lot of fishermen who depend upon the salty side of things. And and you know, that's a social decision, not a, a scientific one. But you know, two wrongs don't make it right. So, you know, first of all, we need to do what we can to you know avoid any damages and minimize them. But if we're going to damage someone, I think we should pay them out. But it's a complicated coast. But it's just so valuable economically. We uh, we want to keep it going for centuries. Yeah, Andy. You know the the phrase is "There's no status quo in Louisiana," right? That applies to a lot of things, but but certainly the coast. It's always changing. It's changing with or without us. And so, um, yeah, that that's an interesting you know thought and perspective. The same thing about you know the other bayou, Bayou the Fouche, Of course, used to have cattle and orchards and and all those things. Um, and so how much it's changed between now and then and what are the opportunities or, or the tools and the tool chest that we have, right? You know, that that we can look forward. I don't want to um, I don't want to skip past. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the show, we want to go back to your favorite hangout spot. Let's talk about past the loot a little bit. Wildlife management area. Um, recently, a reporter, Tristan Bark from the Times Speaking New Orleans Advocate, did a feature that included you and um, a favorite of ours, a CBRA biologist, Todd Baker, who, of course, used to be at Wildlife and Fisheries and CBRA had a great steal there. So tell us more about this place. What makes it so special and, and why that's your place to go. So the, uh, that article, you know, I, I had uh, sent Tristan an email to, uh, pointing out that the uh, Passalute Wildlife Management Area turned 100 years old on November 1st of this year. And so uh, that was, uh, you know, that alone kind of was worth a note. And then the state's very first restoration uh, program, which began in 1981 or 83, I think, uh, 
that first year they only had, they had like several projects, but one of the first projects was at Pasalute. It was a, a uncontrolled sediment diversion, three of them down there. And I was working there when they dug those things. And that was another reason to, to you know, mention Pasalute. And then the oil spill, that was where the first oil came aboard. And, you know, Tristan did a great job on that article, but I can't tell you how much I hate the headline. I don't know if you remember the headline, front page, above the fold, it's doomed. Oh, and, no. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, and the, that was, it's true that I said that, but my, what I, my full quote was, and which is down the article, but is, you know, it's doomed, but it's way too soon to give up on it. You know, it's going to be there at least another 50 years, you know, maybe 100. And that's one thing that Todd was saying, you know, it's going to be there at least another century, maybe two. And so how far it, it's going to last is, uh, is uh, it's way out there in the future, but you know there have been a lot of people who say that you know we need to write off that part of the coast, and that part of the coast is holding itself steady. Uh, you know, Tafalaya region is gaining land. Everywhere else in the state is losing land. The mouth of the river has been holding steady since the 1980s, and yet people are saying, "Well, it's too far away. It's doomed. It's not going to make it." I'm like, "No, it's it, yeah. Well, we're all doomed." You know, I'm doomed, but I, you know, but that means I'm gonna start eating cheesecake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> oh, okay. Inside. We're not supposed <laughs> to do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, that's uh, why that article is there. So a great article, horrible headline. And then, like I said, you know, I worked there for you know 18 months. It was I worked eight days on, six days off because it, it's so remote, and it's where I, oh Jesus, where I first got to see a place. The seasons change, and uh, it's my favorite place. It just is. Um, I don't know. I, I could go on and on about it. I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> we could have a whole episode dedicated to pass the loot. Um, oh, so no, you, people work there. Oh, yeah, yeah, you could. You could. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Andy, you mentioned um, some of the, I think, crevasses that were dug there and kind of some of the first restoration projects. But how has the work and research that you and others have done in, in pass the loot informed uh, restoration across the coast more broadly? Yeah, uh, so you know there was some work done in the, oh, maybe 15, 20 years ago, looking at the cost of those uh, uh, sediment diversions, and uh, and then we've done work looking at the value, the, the bird use of the different types of restoration down there, because we have the, the sediment diversions that have built new land down there, and we do a lot of dredge, uh, take a lot of sediment out of the navigation channel and pump it into open water and building wellings. Um, and we look at the, you know, look at bird use and, and around those edges. Let's see, we've also just, oh, we got a paper coming out now looking at uh, blue crabs, oh. uh, all fish, uh, but, you know, comparing uh, fish and uh, abundance between the uh, mouth of the river, Pasalute, but also way over at uh, Sister Lake, you know, south uh, west of Homa. And because that's an area, you know, completely cut off from the river. You know, it was fresh, you know, centuries ago, but now it's getting that salty side and subsiding away. And uh, they, uh, so we can, hopefully those data will be useful in uh, modeling the effects of diversions, you know, changing the area from salty to fresh or vice versa. Um and then also I bring students down, undergraduates down there for spring break so we can look at all those different restoration projects and also just see what it takes to, you know, uh, keep a wildlife management area going. Spring yeah, break in Pasalute, Jacques, that's yeah, where we're going. You hear? I know. We have to do a trip <laughs> soon. Uh, we'll have to go down there, yeah, in the spring. I'm sure it's it's beautiful when everything's kind of coming to life. Oh, it is. It is. Well, yes. Yeah. So, Andy, you know, we share so many perspectives on Louisiana's coast and why restoring it is important um, on Delta dispatches. 
Um, but just kind of as we wrap up um, our discussion today, you know, from your perspective, what's at stake in terms of the bounty of Louisiana's coast as we know it from a wildlife and ecological standpoint? Um, and and why are these efforts needed um, and why are these projects so important to sustain that? You know, you, you said several times about centuries, you know, we still have a long ways to go. So um, just kind of final words on on why restoring it matters, as we say on Delta Dispatches. It matters because the fish and wildlife are out there. That was the motivation for the first restoration, you know, the Quipper restoration program that came up in the uh, 90s with federal dollar help. It's the fish and wildlife. And, you know, the, the, rec- it was, the cool thing about that program was it recognized that it's the habitat that supports it. They, they didn't go put the money into hatcheries to, you know, release fish or ducks out and replay it. They knew they needed the habitat. So it's all about that habitat. And it's economically important. You know, the alligator, most people don't recognize the alligator brings in more dollars than oysters, which is usually the people mm. when start talking about the coast. And so, you know, most of those dollars come from the farm, but the farm alligators are totally dependent upon the wild population for eggs. And so the alligator, you know, deserves to be in that parade. It is economically only behind, only shrimp beats the alligator. So it, we need it for dollars. But then there's this stuff we do with all that food and, we, you know, the meals we make and the cell- social events we have around those meals. That's what's at stake. It's, it's all that stuff. So, Andy, I mean, that is a great way to sum up um, the importance of this work and kind of the, the importance of Louisiana's coast and its full bounty, you know, to our, you know, from an economical standpoint, just from an ecological standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, we love gathering around the bounty that the coast provides. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I wanted to ask, you mentioned a study on blue crabs. What else are you focused on now from a research standpoint or looking into 2022? What are, what are you excited about? Oh, so I'm working with uh, uh, people here, at uh, Sammy King here at LSU, uh, trying to estimate secretive marsh bird abundance throughout our coast and across that estuarine gradient. Because these are the little bird, little chicken-like birds that run around the grass. They're much harder to count. And we want to know how many are out there, how our restoration will affect them, how oil spills affect them, for whatnot. I'm working with uh, a grad student, uh, trying to figure out which plant species is best at building elevation because, you know, water, waterfowl managers know how to manage vegetation, make duck foods. We need to know how to make, manage vegetation, make elevation as well. So we can offset more subsidence and sea level rise. Uh, so working with uh, uh, Tracy Quirk over in oceanography, we're starting some work trying to figure out how to get, make our wetland creation with dredge material more efficient. It's such an expensive technique that even small improvements uh, can either save us money or get us some more acres of uh, creative wetlands. Uh, and I got about like five, I got like 10 things going on I'm juggling. So I'll stop there. <laughs> Very busy and sounds like you're not slowing down anytime soon. And so, you know, I just want to say thank you so much for being on today, but please, you know, any new science or research you want to highlight or, you know, any of your students or the folks that are working um, with you over at LSU, you all are always welcome to come on the show and share your research and share your latest news with us. All right. Thank you very much. 
Well, before we let you go, I'm going to have to hand it over to Simone. I don't know if you remember this, Andy, from the last show, but we have a tradition on Delta Dispatches um, and we ask a fun question. So Simone is going to ask your fun question today. Yeah, because I missed out on the last one. Um, And Jacques and I uh, find that this is the best way to get to know some folks. And so um, with the Thanksgiving season upon us, the fun question is, um, are you a stuffing person, stuffing in, stuffing out? Are you like, well, you're you're from New Orleans, so you might be an oyster dressing kind of guy, right? Oh, uh, uh, sorry. So you got to have dressing. Uh, it's on the outside. <laughs> you need the oyster dressing, and you also need another pan of cornbread dressing. So you got to have both of them. Mm-hmm. got to have both, both cornbread mm-hmm. and oyster. Keep them on the outside. So did you grow up, because your mom and dad weren't from here, did you put the stuffing in the turkey? We did, and but yeah. it was always cornbread dressing because yeah, you know, was yeah, Mississippi, and so uh, we did. But then we also did oyster. Actually, we always had they always had oyster too. But you know, <laughs> Biloxi was the oyster capital of the world yeah. hundred years ago. It wasn't Louisiana. It was uh, Biloxi, and so yeah, we did oyster dressing from the beginning. Always had two. Always had nice. Both. Jacques, I'm gonna force you to answer this question. Simone, I just, I can't answer that question. All I can say is thank you because now all I'm going to think about is oyster dressing for the next <laughs> uh, week. I don't know anywhere in Minnesota where I can get oysters or at least I'll send you oyster. some. I'll bring you some. I'll, I'll <laughs> just, drive it up myself. I'll bring you some. No, a little, a little birdie told me uh, I might be in Louisiana pretty soon. So I'm sure I'll spend a lot of time eating oysters while I'm there. But no, I, I think we're dressing on the side, but it was always, yeah, oyster dressing for, for us, I would say. Um, we never yeah, really- we. We're a rice dressing and a cornbread dressing um, family. We are both because we are kind of a house divided. Same with the potato salad, right in the gumbo. <laughs> we don't we don't get along culinarily. Um, oh, you just made my mouth water. I <laughs> want to do that. A lot to get. Oh my gosh! I, I, put that, I put potato salad in my gumbo now. Good Yay! Hey, Aunt. Yes. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. We're, we're both uh, in the gumbo uh, with the potato salad on Delta Dispatches. So you're you're in yeah. good company here. Yes, yes. Um, but my husband's family, they're big oyster dressing folks and oyster patties. Shock, I think I feel like we've talked about that before. Yes. Where you have to buy the certain bread. Oh, um, no, you have, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's you a go to McKenzie's, right? And mm-hmm. there's actually in Lakeview on Harrison, I forget the name, but mm-hmm. there's that bakery that's like McKenzie's, but it's not McKenzie's. Yes. And they still yes. sell the shells for the oyster patties. So if, hot tip, if, if anyone's looking to do the oyster patties with McKenzie shells, you can get them there. Yes. Yes. So now that we're all starving, <laughs> it's in, in uh, for, it's in the morning for, for those the folks that don't, you know, we record in the morning and I'm, I'm want a full meal right now. So, <laughs> well, thank you, Andy. It was a real pleasure to have you on. I'm glad I got to partake in, in this interview since Jacques hogged you the last time. It was truly a pleasure. We love hearing your perspective. We certainly love hearing about your work and want to just underscore that you always have an open invitation to come back. Um, and Jacques and I will be following up on that spring break um, trip to Pasolute. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, Jacques, you want to um, handle Coastal Stat and I'll do Coastal Voice? That sounds good. So this week's Coastal Stat is particularly relevant. It's from the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries website. And it says that Louisiana and Florida have the largest alligator populations. There are more than 1 million wild alligators in each state. Although alligators can be found in ponds, lakes, canals, rivers, swamps, and bayous in Louisiana, they are most common in our coastal marshes. Of the almost 4.5 million acres of alligator habitat available in Louisiana, coastal marshes account for more than 3 million, followed by Cypress Tupelo Swamp, 
Atchafalaya Basin Swamp, and lakes. Very good stat. Thank you for that. Um, I, I didn't even get to tell my alligator story about when I was a little girl and we found one in the yard. And my, um, I'll tell, I'll tell that story in a future Delta dispatches. <laughs> That's a total tease. Oh, um, yeah. But the, <laughs> the coastal voice from the week is from that article with the um, terrible headline, and um, but it was a good article by Tristan Barrick about the Pasolute Wildlife Management Area. Todd Baker, a biologist with CPRA, says crevasses are the most cost-effective restoration tool we have in our toolbox. It doesn't take much. You just dig a ditch and allow it to build land naturally. I can hear Todd saying that in, in Todd's twang. I can hear that. Um, the crevasses gave rise to the state's most ambitious coastal Restoration project, the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion, a $2 billion crevasse on a grand scale. If approved by federal regulators, the diversion will funnel sediment leading Mississippi River water through a section of levee on Plaquemines Parish West Bank and spill it into the Barataria Bay, potentially building 18,000 acres of marsh. Pasolute was where that whole idea was developed, Nyman said. Just to remember, you can add your own coastal voice at MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. Well, wonderful episode. I hope everyone has a very peaceful and happy um, and delicious Thanksgiving. Um, and we appreciate your listening. We'll have more really great episodes coming up for you in December. Um, until then, this sign-off is more relevant than ever. So until then, we will see y'all later, alligators. Alligators.